0: Welcome to the CRE Podcast, 100% Canadian, 100% commercial real estate. Now here are your hosts, Aaron Cameron and Adam Pawatik. This is Adam Pawatik from the CRE Podcast. The following is a webinar we've recorded with John Love that the Real Estate Forums put together and hosted. It isn't our regular podcast, but the structure is very similar. John Love shares his thoughts on how COVID-19 is impacting our industry and what to expect on the other side. There was a minor technical issue around the six-minute mark that led to a few minutes of bad audio. We edited it out, which is why one part might sound a little strange to you. The rest of the recording is amazing and worth your time, as John Love is one of the brightest minds in our industry. Enjoy.
1: Good afternoon. I'm George Przyszkowski, and welcome to the 11th of our series of Canadian Real Estate Forum webinars. We're especially pleased today to present an insightful conversation with one of our industry's most respected CEOs. Of the 1,200 speakers that participate during a typical year in our 18 conferences across the country, John Love has consistently been the most highly rated CEO and thought leader. He is the founder and chief executive of Kingstead Capital, Canada's leading private equity real estate investment business. John was formerly president and CEO of Oxford Properties Group until the company was sold to Omer's. He serves on the board of the Chief Executives Organization, is a member of the Business Council of Canada, received an honorary doctorate from Western University, and was also appointed a member of the Order of Canada in 2018. John has the unique experience of having managed a real estate organization through several recessions, beginning with the very prolonged one in the first half of the 1990s he will be able to draw upon key lessons that he learned from those situations as we find ourselves in another recession. The theme of his interview today is appropriately the potential impacts of COVID-19 on Canadian real estate. How can you prepare for what lies ahead? John will be interviewed by Aaron Cameron and Adam Powatic of First National Financial, Canada's largest non-bank lender. Over the past three years, they have built Canada's largest and most popular commercial real estate podcast, having conducted over 100 interviews. Today marks the first opportunity for everyone to actually see Aaron and Adam live in person as they appear on a webinar platform. And we particularly noted the hair that Aaron is bringing on to the video today a few comments on some logistical elements of the technology we're using today. Depending upon the depth of the discussion, there could be an opportunity for John to also respond to a few questions from viewers. You can type one in at any time during the webinar. Click the Q&A button on the left-hand side of your screen and hit the Submit button. To improve your viewing and listening experience, you can move your webcast windows around by dragging on the title bar or resize them by clicking on the lower right corner. At the bottom of your screen, you'll also find multiple application widgets. Registration for today's session reached our maximum of 2,000 participants last week. It is being recorded and will be available for on-demand viewing. You'll be notified by email tomorrow with a link to the archive. Please pass the information along to other colleagues who were not able to watch today's presentation and register. Our sincere thanks to JLL and Yardi for co-sponsoring this webcast. And with that, Aaron and Adam, the floor is now yours.
2: Thanks, George. Really appreciate it. Thanks for the call. I, I did for the record, I asked if I should shave and I was instructed not to shave to represent the true COVID experience that many of us are going through. And I'm sure lots of our listeners have something very similar. So really excited Adam and I you know for many of our listeners Adam and I are the co-hosts of the commercial real estate podcast and and so this is you know surprisingly familiar for us true to our spirit we're not very scripted you know we've got a couple ideas of what questions we want to ask but we're going to try to really keep this conversational of course with John being one of the more prevalent minds in our industry you know we're hoping we can kind of pull something out that you may have not heard him say before or seen him type on the media that he's active on typical to the way that we kind of conduct our podcast we're going to start you know quickly I mean George gave us a pretty good background of John so John I'm going to kind of lead you into rather than sort of a chronological history maybe a couple key moments of your career that kind of stand out or maybe key individuals that were important in your in your trajectory end up you know where you are today. Well, Thank you Aaron and it's my pleasure to be
3: here. You know all of our lives have moments along the way that impact how you look forward. I started my business career as a retail stockbroker for what is now Scotia MacLeod. Perhaps the most important thing I could do is not give great investment advice, but give great investment service. And part of that was empathy and values and concerns. And that really started to build the foundation. As I went into the early 90s, one of the things that I learned, I had had, our first time we had a loan at Oxford, but we couldn't pay the interest on time. And I went to see the lender. I was very nervous. And I said to the lender, I explained the situation. I also explained all the things we were hoping to do to kind of help the situation. And on the way out, he said to me, thank you. And I stopped. And I said, "Thank you." It wasn't the response I was expecting. He said, "John, we have three kinds of borrowers. He says, the first kind: borrow money and pay us back. We like them the most. The second kind: borrow money and hurt our collateral. Don't tell us the truth. Do a variety of things like that. And we go out of our way to hurt them. Third kind of borrower is someone that has a problem, comes in, and tells us." And we'll work with the borrower and we'll work with you. And that set the tone for Oxford's emergence of the recession of the early 90s. So I've been blessed with lots of lessons along the way. And the important thing is you listen to those lessons and apply them in your life. Sounds like reputation is important. Well, in this business and in this country, small country, you know, your reputation And your values speak everything. And it is building relationships, maintaining relationships that are the foundation, I think, of any business career. And relationships can only be built on trust, transparency, integrity. That's foundational to how I've done business and how I think I built Kingset and, frankly, Oxford. John, why did you start Kingset? So, great question. The end of the Oxford story was, for me, was, you know, the business had grown to a Competition Act level of a business. And, you know, basically we had to make a decision at that time on whether to either expand into the U.S. or change the business model. And I didn't think Oxford, at least under my leadership, was the right vehicle to do either. We had a sale to Omers, and I think Omers has done a terrific job with Oxford over the last 18 years, credit to that almost 20 years credit to that team. So for me, I, you know, I took six months off with my wife, had a, had a fantastic six months, both our children were in university and then came back and said, what do I want to do with the rest of my, you know, life or career, whatever, and decided that what gave me energy was working with people, was working on deals, working on things that were creative and making a difference. And so I talked to some of the key Oxford relationships I had and said, would they be prepared to
0: support a fund in a business? And people were kind enough to do that. And Kingset was born. Well, while we're talking about your past, I mean, we're, we're going to spend quite a bit of time focused, obviously, on COVID-19. But while we on, are in your past, let's talk about your previous challenges you've gone through. You've had a long career and you've gone through a couple of these uh, these major downturns in your intended operations. So how do you survive the first few Major crises and how are they going to be different from the one we're going through right now? Well, you know, first of all,
3: every crisis is a little bit the same because when you're in the middle of it, it's, you know, can be very disarming. So if we think of the recession in, in the early 90s, coming out of that, I was trying to get investment capital into Oxford. And I had several pension fund officers say to me, the one thing we'll never do is we'll never invest in real estate again. If you think of nine hundred one com, when technology blew up the first time, it was the end of office as we knew it. 9-11, no one would occupy a tall building. If you think of the days, not weeks, days after 9-11, there was significant concern whether anyone would actually reoccupy an office space. 08-09, we all thought perhaps the world was ending, the financial system as we knew it. And so today, we find ourselves in a cloud of COVID. And I would say that every crisis has only one thing in common. They all end. And while in the middle
0: of them, it's always difficult to see the other side. And I guess one major difference as well is in, in this most recent crisis it has been so long since the last one that many people in real estate, myself included, have not, uh, have not been tested in the fire of, of a disaster before. And so it's a real learning experience for, for many of us. You mentioned that the cloud of COVID it's a related question to somebody who just, uh, who just messaged us asking about your prolific LinkedIn presence. You seem quite active on social media. And related to that, I saw, I saw a comment from you about Stelco. It's a steel manufacturer who's choosing to make a big move in this crisis. And the exact quote from you was, playing smart offense in the cloud of a crisis will be rewarded. A message for all to consider. So have you seen anybody in our commercial real estate world who is doing a similar smart offense play?
3: Well, first of all, let me answer that question in three pieces. First point is that I think it is a responsibility of business leadership to communicate what they're seeing and feeling, to comment on both public policy as well as what other businesses are doing. I think all too often business leadership cloisters amongst itself, talks to itself only, and the message is lost. So that's number one. So that's given rise to me being on LinkedIn and so on. Secondly, I do admire Someone who can see through the fog to the other side and say there's actually an opportunity here because there's always opportunity in crisis. And so, you know, the gentleman that owns uh, Stelco, and I, you know, I have met with him some time ago, is a very creative entrepreneur. And I think he's making a very thoughtful decision on building that business into what he hopes will be the most cost competitive steel company in North America. And coming out of this crisis, that would be a very interesting spot to be in. And the third piece of that message was that everybody can say to themselves, you know, how can I, in my own way, pay a bit of offense? How can I look forward? What can I do that might be different? Because there are all sorts of things we can do in our businesses looking forward that can take advantage of opportunities in a crisis. At Kingset, we're doing a number of things. We've got our sights on some different investment activities. We have our sights on Dealing with a number of tenants who are, uh, need some help and we're going to help them. But at the same time, we're looking at some of the opportunities that that might provide us with that tenant base. We're looking at some intensification options that are now made more available to us because we can deal with tenants that might otherwise have objected. So there's always ways to look forward in a thoughtful and constructive way. And it's important that we all do that, whether it's a business or individually in times of a crisis.
2: Adam and I interviewed a colleague of yours, a leader of a, of a similar firm, and we had asked him a question about how does he get back into COVID? And we'll ask you a similar question eventually. But your name came up because his answer was, well, through, through their debt fund, they're going to use their debt fund to sort of initially get into you know, more opportunities and find some transactions and potentially you know, find some opportunity there. But they had really just started their debt fund and were kind of growing it out. Yet you've kind of been growing both your both sides of your business in tandem. I think since you really started Kingset, I thought to myself, was that a was that a strategy of yours to have two equal funds? You know, for the purposes of when the next crisis arises, that you're well situated to take advantage. And was were you playing this super long game of sort of you know in twenty years or ten years, there's going to be a need to have you know multiple
3: different types of funds. So I would say one of the most important things to do if you're starting a business and King said, we started in a coffee shop. One of the most important things you do when you start a business is not be encumbered with a strategy because too often people overthink what they think the future might be and they lose sight of what the future can be. So when we started, I had a very clear path it's just we never did anything on that path because we we're always flexible enough to change strategy live. So, what
2: was that path, I, John? What was, what was the initial path?
3: Well, the initial path was an opportunity fund that was going to buy portfolios and carve it into, into good assets and, and other assets and split them into two different buyer groups. That was a great strategy, and I'd done that at Oxford. It's just we never had an opportunity to do that at Kingset, and it turned out the first thing, the first investment made in Kingset was a $3 million loan. And I never thought we'd do a loan, but, you know, we did a $3 million loan. And funny story, we put out this $3 million, came back after a year, we earned 20%. I thought, well, that was terrific. The investors looked at me and said, well, what are you going to do next? In other words, putting money out for just one year and earning a good return isn't a business. So we continually then and today refine and build our investment model, our thesis, understanding what our stakeholders are looking for and what are available in the marketplace. Because if you told me, if you look back, and this would be my whole career. I mean, I started as a stockbroker, you know, I ended up doing all sorts of different things. And some of the things that people might say were our marquee points in my career, there was no necessarily, you know, long-term plan. And it is trying to be thoughtful, opportunistic, and understand what's available in the marketplace. And, Every moment, the circumstances are what they are. you got to move your business model and continually be thinking about where your business model will have more traction. Kind of
2: on that note, and this is kind of a cheeky question. You said when, in one of our pre-calls, you said, ask me a question that, that no one's ever asked me before, so I'll try it seems to me anyway, and I'm, and I'm just one observer that sometimes, you know, Kingset's involved in sort of the sort of headline transactions. And of course, there's the Northview transaction that's the most recent, but the Royal York purchase, the Scotia Tower, helping, you know, the home capital situation. I mean, Kingset seems to be kind of having you know, transactions where there is some sort of a headline. You know, I'm wondering if there's an ROI calculation of that, if there's value in having sort of Kingset in transactions that are larger, and if, if that ever plays out in any of the
3: discussions. Let me see, I I just got that answer on page six here. No, no, we don't pursue large transactions just on their own merit. But if you look at our competitive position, it is, you know, we have the ability to aggregate scale capital. And while there's others that can do that as well, there's fewer and fewer as you get larger. And if we look back at, you know, whatever the various transactions are, as they get larger, we put together more parties that have different roles that are all getting a piece of the puzzle that they want. And we've got different pools of capital to deal with that. Royal York, you know, was quite a, a, you know, an unusual circumstance. It had a particular play. Home capital, you know, is a billion dollar trade. You know, like, how do you make that work? ING was two, you know, uh, Northview was five. I mean, these are large, complicated transactions that need a lot of depth. You know, we're fortunate we built a broad stakeholder community and a fund family so we can cover every part of the, capital stack. And that, and that has evolved by intention because as we grew, we started with an opportunity fund and then we were seeing great core investments. Then we thought, well, maybe we should do a core fund. And then we were seeing great mortgage investments. And we thought, well, I guess maybe we should have a mortgage fund. And then because our view is we don't have a real estate fund, that we are trying to look at our different silos. They've got different investors and different risk-weighted returns and different strategies. So we keep mapping capital to where we see opportunity.
2: On that note, and we'll get out of the weeds here, we're a little bit in the weeds, but in certain different funds, you leverage those funds. I'm wondering what the strategy is and why and which funds you would you would use that transaction for.
3: In our debt business, we have by strategy adopted the approach of taking less risk in our loans. And so if you think of 1.0 units of risk, we'll take 0.6 elements of risk in our loans and then we'll put some leverage on the loans for the other 0.4 to get the return. But by doing that, we have a much more resilient asset base. And in the case of our two loan books, where we have a couple billion dollars of loans outstanding, we have had all our interest collected in both April and May. And so that strategy is performing just as it should. The book is very resilient. Leverage is another, tool. it's just a tool in the toolkit. And we use different levels of leverage very low leverage in our infill fund, relatively high in our opportunity fund, in the middle in our long-term core fund. It's just a tool in the toolkit. And we use it, we have in both debt funds, but different levels. And it's all part of trying to balance operating risk and financial risk to manage overall
0: risk and deliver a premium risk weighted return. You actually just answered one of our audience questions. So it's, uh, it's, it's good that way. The question was, how do you manage to lend through this pandemic? But related to that, you mentioned the concept of a risk unit as it relates to money lent. If you were looking at it on a yield basis, what's your plan coming out of the pandemic as things return to some sort of normal? We're not expecting it to go back to exactly the way things were before. Will you be looking for higher yield for a similar type loan or pulling back on some of the riskier stuff in the market? How do you plan on adapting your, your debt fund going forward?
3: Well, I mean, first of all, we start with a customer-focused approach, you know, because we're always trying to talk to our customers and understand what they need. And based on on what they need, we try to put together a solution to best meet their needs. And there's no one price fits all or no one security package or whatever. You know, we're looking for counterparties in our mortgage book, you know, where they've got a project we can support. They've got a strategy we can get behind and we can understand what their capital needs are, and we're happy to lend against that strategy, or we might invest and lend against that strategy, depending what the circumstance is. But it always starts with the customer, customer first, and understanding what the customer's need is, and then looking at our array of tools to try and best put
0: together a solution for that customer. I like it, it's a a solid answer on a related note to that as well you know your your perception of risk in the market obviously the risk we're seeing is not weighted evenly across all asset classes you know the obvious ones of course our hospitality and retail are seeing a much more substantial impact so if you're looking at your portfolio as again we get back to some version of normal are you going to rebalance your book in the asset distribution and what would that look like 3 to 5 years from now to reflect the, the change in consumer patterns, everybody's anticipating anyway. Yeah, so I think,
3: you know, first of all, what people are anticipating, there's a lot of views that I may not agree with. When people talk about office that, you know, work from home versus densification or retail e-commerce versus pickup versus the mall. All those trends are gonna happen. All of those trends are gonna happen. And it's not one to the exclusion of another. And so then you say, what is the balance? To come back to our asset strategy, you know, we have for some time focused on MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver with overweighting in Toronto. We tend to have a greater focus on core and core being uh, what you can do if you walk, not drive. And we've been building our weighting in office, in multi-res and in, in industrial. We've been managing our retail and, you know, our retail book is relatively small. It's 15% of our income fund. It's kind of 10% of our overall. And, you know, we've got good partners, good assets. And I'm pleased to say our two Saskatchewan malls open today. And I would say they're the two dominant in Regina, Saskatoon. And I would say it was a pretty good first day or first two hours. That's the report I got. And, you know, on we go. On
2: that note, John, when we're... I think the title of this is the potential impacts of COVID. So we need to move forward and kind of think about, you know, what it's going to look like, what our experience with real estate is going to look like going forward. You know, on that note, maybe more current situation we're having is bringing books to market. Just the challenge with valuations. How is Kingstead managing that? And have you kind of found a solution to get your book, you know, mark to market?
3: You know, the marks for Q1 are tricky because, you know, appraisers have all issued their appraisal reports with non-reliance letters because they don't know what's going to happen. So they all got together as a group and saying versus somebody, yes, and everybody, why don't we We'll use December 31st investment metrics and update for cash flow changes and so on. As we go into Q2, some more of that will become evident, but it's not, it's not clear to me that even then, because of the relative lack of investment velocity, that there will be any bright lights. We are, in our income fund, which is the only one that really gets marked on a transactional basis, we've said that we're going to actually use a mark that's based on a whole year's results so that nothing gets impacted on just one quarter where people may not have confidence in what that mark is. We'll see. But I also think that perhaps two weeks ago, people were maybe three weeks ago. I mean, remember, just as a point of reference, on March 13th, all right, March thirteenth, so only sixty-five days ago, the Royal York was sold out. Okay, March, March 13th. You know, and it seems like we've been in this lockdown forever, but it's not really been forever. It's just been Groundhog Day for 70 days. I think that in another two weeks, in another four weeks, in another six weeks, the world will continue to evolve substantially. I'm not at all satisfied that there will be much impact on best of class real estate. Values. I think there's still demand at all sorts of different levels, and a lot of the things that were there before will be here now. Remember, this is a health crisis, not a financial crisis. It's not a supply demand based crisis, it's a health crisis. We intentionally shut down the economy. I look out my apartment window into downtown Toronto and I see 150 million square feet of office, retail, and residential space that for two months hasn't had any maintenance work done. You know, When you think of what that deferred CapEx means to employment, I mean, the fact is, the machine will get going again, and I think that we'll find that the next normal is more like the last normal than many people over the last two weeks have thought. There'll be changes, there's always changes, and and change is good, but I don't think it's going to be as much different as people think. And as we finish going through this, I think many institutional and global investors will again reconfirm their commitment to real estate, which is shown
0: through a difficult period of time to maintain basic value and returns. I do agree with that, John, that uh, there's always a recency effect when everybody thinks about possible impacts. And that of course, everybody heard every crisis previously is a short memory. So it, it does go away. And of course, the impacts uh, you know, do, do fade quickly over time. One of the, the big ones that we did have experienced was the the loss of Sidewalk Labs. In the in the questions from the audience, it's popped up uh, numerous times, which is not surprising. So what are your thoughts on COVID-19, removing that prospect from our city?
3: Well, I think COVID and sidewalks are totally unrelated. There's um, an
0: argument you made for that, yes?
3: Well, I mean, sidewalks, the sidewalk proposal had been, you know, in very difficult position for, years. There was, you know, you know, the and and blame is all around. I, you know, I, I'm not saying anybody was right or anybody was wrong, but every time they turned around, it required another consultation and another consultation. And I think COVID was just an easy, an easy time to pull a cord. So I don't think those two issues are related. I think many businesses will use this time to do things that they knew they had to do before. You'll see in large corporations, some reshuffling, you know, some timely reshuffling. We've had 10 years of growth. Everybody says, do I have one reporting structure too many? Do I have one plant too many? Do I have, you know, one, whatever too many? It's a good time to look at that. You know, it's COVID. Why don't we deal with this, that, or the other thing? So some of these announcements that you'll, you have seen and will see where the, the company or the CEO conveniently says, well, COVID, you know, like, so I'm closing these office facilities or I'm doing this and that. They were all on the closed board before, and this is just a good time. Everybody's got cover. No one can criticize those kinds of decisions. That, in my view, and I don't have any inside information, is probably the sidewalk issue. I mean, I was a big booster sidewalk because I thought it was big, bold, interesting. There was others who thought it was an American company and data privacy issues and whatever. And what I thought was a layup turned into be an enormously divisive issue. I can say from, and one of the things I find very interesting to LinkedIn, when I post something that I think, that's ah, it's not that controversial, but gets gang tackled, it tells you a lot about what people are thinking. And Sidewalk was just that issue, very divisive. So, you know, we'll probably have, you know, swamp for another couple generations and then we'll see what happens. <laughs>
2: <laughs> I hope you're wrong, I hope you're wrong. You touched on a couple different things which you know I think we should probably dive in a little bit more. You I mean you talked about the opportunity for transition and the opportunity to kind of do things differently. You started this you know one of the comments here about you know you had an idea for Kingset and quickly pivoted to do something different so uh, this is a two part question first, you know what conversations what ideas are you throwing around within Kingset to pivot to take this opportunity to to find that way to differentiate yourselves one and two, maybe overarching that, you know, leadership is so critical for this time period. So maybe how are you using your leadership to guide your group and your, your soldiers to make interesting decisions and to try to find the opportunity?
3: So to the first one, what are we doing? um, you know, to take advantage of this crisis is I've been asking everybody in our business to talk to a customer, a colleague, a supplier, anyone around, and to build those relationships because this is the perfect time to be able to reach out and touch somebody. Now, maybe Zoom, we're not touching people, but to just check in with customers, suppliers, colleagues, coworkers, vendors, anyone of every time because it's at a time like this, when you check in with someone and say, I just wanted to see how you're doing, that it can have an enormous relationship tail and, and that's the currency of our business. From a leadership perspective, when you've got a crisis, this is when leadership really has to stand up and be visible, which, of course, is very difficult when everybody's self-isolated. So starting on March 15th, every morning before 7 a.m., I send out an email to all said employees and uh, some of it people might find very boring. But I talk about what we're doing, what the business is facing, what I'm seeing, what I'm feeling, and I'm offering a vision of the future. I'm trying to interpret some of the shrill that's out there for our people, at least from my perspective. So people can at least hear what we're thinking. You know, that's evolved to four days a week with now a Friday webinar where I'm joined with my partners, Anna, Rob and Bill. And and we take questions and so on. And it's fascinating. So the first time we did this was like an eight minute overview, taking questions. And the question's after an hour, we shut off, right? And it just shows you how interested people are in engaging with leadership to say, what's going on? And leadership should be at every level in the organization, including every individual can be a leader in their family, their business, their community, whatever. So it's sharing, reaching out, touching people. And in the case of leading a business, like King said, it's giving people assurance, That we have a path forward. We can make this work. Now, I've been through this before in Oxford in the early 90s. And, you know, Oxford in the early 90s was way more difficult than this is. Because Oxford in the early 90s was we didn't have any money. And so making payroll was actually a biweekly concern. And, you know, I got people together and I said, we've got two choices. We can quit or fight. And if we fight, this is what I think it's going to look like. And, you know, those days are some of the most interesting and exciting days in my business career because, you know, we just a quick story. We would have huddles and cuddles. So huddles were meetings amongst the executive team where a crisis came in and we had to meet same day like it was urgent. But a cuddle was when something very, very serious happened. And if somebody called a cuddle, everybody dropped their phone and you gathered right then because it was the support of the team. It was the collective vision. It was the. Empathy, the anger, the fear, the jokes that all collectively together allowed us as a team to move forward. So, and I talked a lot, didn't have email in those days. So I'd go around and actually talk to people, you know, about what we're doing, what we're trying to do, and why I thought we could get this done. And you know what? People want to know that there's a hill worth taking, that you've got a plan to take the hill. And actually, in taking that hill, That's got good purpose to it because everybody would like to fight for purpose. And we have a purpose. King said has a purpose. We're producing returns for pension fund recipients
0: all over the country. We make a difference. We'll get up every day and do the best we can because we can figure this out. Hearing you speak now about leadership, it's clear that you have a passion for it and focus a lot on how you can help, as you said, your community, your company. We can look at the flip side of the coin for a second. What leadership attributes have been most absent during this crisis? And that could be at governmental level. It could be within our industry, within another industry, any of the circles that you travel in. What have you thought has hurt this the most from a leadership perspective?
3: I said when we're at the peak of the crisis, and we'll go through the next two phases is peak panic. And you'll only know peak panic when you're past it. And then what comes after that is finger pointing and credit taking. We're through both of those. I think our leaders, provincially and federally, have all been faced with a very tough task. I think they work together well. And I think on balance, you know, I I think that's been well done. The one issue for me is that whoever it is, I'd love them to end up their comments with an inspiring step forward. We will get through this. We will meet again. If you want to see power and leadership, play Queen Elizabeth's four-minute speech again. And that showed such grace and such power. And the thing that resonates with most people is her saying, We will meet again. And you believe her. You've got to give people hope. Now, part of that strategy with the politicians is to is to scare people so they stayed home. I sympathize with that tactic
2: really empowering conversation. I'm having a hard time segueing into just the use of commercial real estate because that's such a such a strong, strong statement. But maybe you can help. So again, the purpose here is potential impacts of COVID. You were talking about, you know, we will be together again. And I think one asset that people are the most concerned about is probably retail, right? And and you know, let me set it up because I think the next the rest of the conversation, we got about 15 minutes to go. Let's just talk about maybe some different asset classes and how we interact with those asset classes as society comes back to to as you kind of dubbed the next normal. Let's start with retail, I think that's the most interesting. Documented restaurants not being able to put in nearly as many people. You talk about experiential malls, you know, are people going to be comfortable walking around on a rainy day in the summertime lining up the grocery store, right? We all line up outside and now the aisles you've got to go up and down with the arrows. You know, some people believe that that is the next normal, that it, that is the way we're going to experience retail for a prolonged period of time. And whether you agree with that or not, maybe you challenge me, how does that impact retail? How does that impact valuation of retail, investment in retail? And do you see, have any other comments just
3: about what that's going to look like? So the greatest mistakes made is to linearly extrapolate the events of the present into the future. Because the only thing I know for sure is that'll be wrong. So we're in this interim phase where people are doing all sorts of things. We opened our, our malls today in Saskatchewan. And I just happened to have an update, so I'm going to refer to it. So in Regina, downtown mall, Cornwall, dominant market, dominant mall in the market, 45% of the tenants open, including the bay, 73% of the food court, but no seats. They had about 30 to 35% of the regular traffic they would normally see. And everybody had a smile on their face. There were some lineups of some stores. People were, were lining up. People were being obedient. It's all happening. And this is a bit like spring. The flowers are opening up, and they're getting more and more brilliant. And you will see more of that as retail, as more retail opens. We start to go back to restaurants. At 50% capacity, no restaurant can make money. Forget about the rent. But you've got to start somewhere, and they will. And we'll figure this out, and we'll move along. And I think it's my personal view. Once people feel safe, then you'll see this accelerate more. Now, feel safe could be any one of a number of occurrences. It could be there's a vaccine. It could be that we understand from the statistics, which are still being crunched, that people that are vulnerable, really vulnerable, are actually have a certain set of characteristics older, pre-existing conditions, whatever. We will learn, the fact is we all drive cars and yet there's car accidents every day. We all live with risk. We just have to sort of understand what risk it is we're managing. So I think that feel safe may happen a little bit sooner than some people think. At least that's what I'm hopeful. But we will go back to restaurants. We will go back to shopping for all the same reason as we were there 67 days ago. And now it'll evolve, and good retailers will make some interesting steps and evolutions. And you'll see good owners of real estate will do the same thing as well. And so we're thinking very aggressively in our retail platform of some of the changes that we're going to test and feel. and and you know all of the tier one guys are trying and testing different things. And so you will see that evolve. And it'll be a good thing. And in many regards, we're just going to see the acceleration of trends already in place. And so the connection of digital retail, physical retail, convenience retail, you'll continue to see those models evolve. It's fascinating to see. And cash, interestingly, which was getting less and less important now maybe be dead because nobody wants cash. And so, you know, th- there'll be all sorts of little things that change and there'll be perhaps some big things that change, but I look forward to it with some, you know with some interest there's opportunities here and trust me there's retailers thinking about how to take advantage of this and we want to be with them
0: and to your comment that all of our predictions will be wrong we could have opened the seminar with that and saved everybody an hour of our time but uh, you know we'll, we'll still take everything no, else I didn't, I, didn't, value. I, didn't, I didn't say all of our predictions would be wrong <laughs> i said that
3: linearly extrapolating the behavior of today is wrong because you know humans and societies an urban organization, evolve and adjust, it's not a straight line. And so when people say no one will shop again or you'll always have to line up at the grocery store, for sure, I don't think that's the case. So it's just, I'm not exactly sure anybody's exactly sure exactly what shape that's going to take. And that's okay. All we know is it's going to evolve.
0: And people that can think through that evolution better will win. Virtually everything you said about as soon as fear leaves the market, we'll see a return to normal in regards to retail would apply to hotel as well. So I'm not going to ask you to repeat all that for hotel, but the same principles would absolutely apply. But I do want to ask specifically, you know, I know that you don't have a, a huge hotel exposure, but you do have one very high profile hotel. And that, of course, is the Fairmont in downtown Toronto. Is there anything specific you're doing with that asset you know, outside of your comments about fear diminishing in the market? Is there anything specific you're doing to get that asset poised to make a a strong comeback? Well, we've done two things. First of all, you know, the Royal York is open, it's functioning, and part of the
3: Rest Safe program where we made rooms available for frontline workers has meant that, you know, we've had 100 to 150 rooms used every night. And what that's allowed us to do is to continue to perfect our ability to clean, to be biosecure and so on. Fairmont's just announced this week, their uh, all well program. Their safe well program, oh my goodness, this week, which is a comprehensive program. It's more than just cleaning. It's a focus on wellness. And I think you'll see Fairmont and particularly the Royal York, who got a lot of energy around this to really distinguish itself or really seek to distinguish itself in a wellness template. Because the marketplace needs hotels, But it also needs not a cookie cutter hotel. It needs a hotel that can give people an assurance of their personal wellness while they stay there. One of the things that we're lobbying the government actively on is to open up our restaurants. Because if you think of anywhere that could have a restaurant where you could have physical distancing, it would be the Royal York. We've got space and we can coordinate that and we can manage it. And those teams are in place today. So, you know, obviously, 10 percent occupancy. Doesn't take a lot of room in the rules book. And especially, you know, since we, our first quarter up to, up to March 15th was a record. And then uh, from March 15th to now is also oddly enough a record, but different type. But that said, the machine's running and people are, there's a lot
0: of people focused on this. It's going to be, the hotel will be in very good shape as the economy opens. And we've got about uh, 10 minutes left, about three asset classes to go through. So I want to move on to you know, some of the better news that we've, we've seen. You mentioned early on the lack of data points in the market, but we are, of course, seeing apartments and industrial doing well. And so I'd love to hear your thoughts on how people could capitalize on industrial, because a portion of this discussion is, of course, is strategy to you know, not just uh, survive, but thrive. What do you see for industrial over the next five years that would put people in a winning position?
3: So, you know, I think I think well-positioned uh, industrial will, and when I say well-positioned, well-located industrial, will be a very strong asset class looking forward. The secret is it's a big asset class and a lot of people are competing at for those assets. The secret is, is to select assets where you think you can create value and perhaps you have a slightly different view than the rest of the market. So that creating value is creating a more functional unit, maybe intensifying the site. There's any one of a number of things but one has to look at industrial is just not a cookie cutter but how do i change evolve or whatever the use is there with multifamily multifamily is continuing to perform well i think in the short term you know you're going to see headlines like you saw in the paper today that rents have softened a little bit all of these in my view are both true but probably overstated just as the market's never as good as it looks it's never as bad as it looks you will see some softening in demand at the margin but that's a head fake because we're going to see that pick up pretty quickly because as immigration starts to pick up again and job growth continues to pick up, you know, we're going to see an increased demand for for multi-res as well.
2: John, if you had to put your money into one basket, industrial or apartments, which one is it? It would be
3: apartments. Any reason why just stability of cash flow? You know what? I love a business where effectively you've got no single event risk where you've got the government effectively underpinning your demand and also restricting new supply. It's a robust asset class. And I think, you know, best in case operators who are investing strategically in their buildings, they're building communities, they're treating their tenants properly, they're running it like a service business, will continue to see low volatile, strong returns. Are you not concerned, though, that, you know, rents have kind of
2: maximized, you know, based on that decoupling from income has kind of occurred in, in as you called in the sort of the GTV versus industrials got, you know, quite a bit of potential growth in their rents. Is that not
3: attractive? You know, rent is all just supply and demand. And what we know is in MTV, Montreal, Toronto, Vancouver, what we know in those three cities is it's, you're unlikely to have population declines. That would be my bet. My bet would be we'll continue to see population growth. That's demand growth. I think industrial would be fine, but industrial you're dealing with a lot more different issues. You might have an industrial building with two tenants. One goes out, you've got a you know it's a big crisis. You've got to have more scale in industrial to get the same kind of overall diversification. Now I like industrial. We're actually underweighted industrial, and you know we are looking to to build our on our industrial base. We were underweighted multi-res. Northview is dealt with that issue and you know we feel pretty good about where both those asset classes are going and we feel very confident in our office space all right well
2: last but not least i'm looking at the clock seven minutes till we, we get turned off so you want me to ask a specific question or do you want to just kind of tell us what you think about office and you know how this whole thing is going to
3: evolve over time office is and the use of office space is far more dynamic than many commentators give it credit for. Today, we're looking at these two new issues, de-densifications and work from home. And there's those that say everybody will work from home and, you know, look what Twitter did and so on and so forth. And Twitter and Square, which is a Twitter company, isn't necessarily the benchmark of our customer base. So if we go back, I think what you're going to see is two things. Number one, I think there will be some pushback on the 20 year old trend to densify. So if you might think you go back 20 years ago, office space requirements were 250 square feet per person. You know, 15 years ago it was 200. You know, 10 years ago it was 150. Today you see tenants, you know, designing to hundred. I think there's gonna be pushback on that. But there can't be a lot of pushback because there's not a lot of space. You can't say, well, instead of the hundred, let's assume it's 110. Well, <laughs> there's not 10% space. I think you are gonna see some people work from home but I think the work from home will be more about flex work. I think it'll be allowing that parent to stay with a sick child. It'll be about uh, sick days being able to be connected. And so you, it's more flex work that I think uh, work from home will impact. Today, we're all on a screen. And so that kind of actually works. I look at it like holding my breath. Okay. But if you change that dynamic and put half of our people in an office and the other half remote, which half do you think are making the decisions? The half in the room. You know, there's a lot of truth to the saying in the room, in the deal. So I think we'll find that that people naturally gravitate back, you know, into an office where, you know, the connectivity, uh, the productivity, creativity all coexist in a more dense
0: space. So given that we've kind of gone through you know the main asset classes, uh, the discussion, if we'd had this conversation back in January, it's fair to say that your views have been very different because obviously the, the environment was radically different than it is right now. Heading into this, though, is there anything you feel like King Set might have missed the mark on when this all first was exposed? Did you find any vulnerabilities in your asset allocation or your operations that surprised you?
3: I would say if we had this discussion on March 15th or January 1st, I would have said my analysis was much the same. In other words, you know, we're solid on office. We're underweight, multi-res, happy with the Northview deal. Industrial was an area where we're looking to grow, you know, retail tougher, had to evolve and so on and so forth. So I'm not sure much has structurally changed that um, as to what we could have done better. You know, it's always hard for me to ask that question because it's not how I think, because whatever happened yesterday tends not to be a good guide for tomorrow. So I tend to think about in the present and in the future, how can we take the assets and the attributes we have, and the most important of which is our people. I'll tell you this. I've been really impressed with the Kingset Collective people to come together and do a whole bunch of really tricky things over the last 60 days, all the way from dealing with our tenants to all of our investor reporting, our budgeting, our tax year. Like, There's been lots of work been done, all sorts of stuff on the investment front mortgage book, everybody's been working very hard. And I'll say it's a credit to a great team of people
0: that have come together in difficult circumstances and made it happen. There's a question from the audience about advice for the younger generation. So maybe if you can comment to people who've not been through a situation like this before, and on a high note, something inspiring you could say to people of how they can come out of this on a career personal level as a big winner. This is a great opportunity for a young person to really distinguish themselves. And I'll
3: give you three thoughts. Number one, we will meet again. There is hope. Make sure you're focused on what's next. Number two is get on your phone. Don't text somebody, phone somebody. Don't send someone an email, Zoom them. Go out and reach and talk to your colleagues, your coworkers, your friends, your neighbors. It doesn't matter, but be in the community, be there, and just check in with people. How are they doing? Build those relationships. And thirdly, Look at the work you've got on your plate today and get it done. But then reach out to people you work with, either that you report to or horizontally and say, is there anything else I can do to help you? Because I can tell you in a time of crisis, what everybody loves is someone who's both getting what they've been asked to do done, but asking, say, what else can I do to help? Because that's how a young person
0: can learn and get exposure and see other things. John, I love it. That's, that's great advice. And I hope the, uh, the person listening appreciated it and the audience as a whole. We are out of time now. And I thank you for the hour of insight. We covered a lot of topics. Your answers are very candid. And I know that I appreciated it. And uh, I'll speak for my co-host, Aaron, as well, that uh, he appreciated it. And I'm sure the audience at large. Uh, at this point, I'd like to pass the virtual podium back to uh, George.
1: Well, and thank I'm sure we've run out of time because I, it really has been a terrific conversation. Thank you so much, John and Aaron and Adam. We sincerely appreciated having you with us today and on the various thoughts and insights, John, that you shared on the impacts of COVID-19 on the Canadian real estate market, along with your thoughts on the past, as well as how to prepare for what lies ahead. Our thanks also to JLL and Yardi for co-sponsoring today's session. As a reminder to all of you, there will be a follow-up email tomorrow that will include a link to view a recording of today's presentation. If you found this event useful, please share it with your colleagues. Once you leave the webcast, a short survey will pop up in your browser window. We would greatly appreciate your feedback on the four questions pertaining to this event. Next week on Wednesday at 3.30, back by popular demand, we will feature a webinar with the same panel that examined the topic of the reopening of the workplace a week ago. The format, however, will be completely different. It'll be an Ask Me Anything where the five panelists will not be making presentations, but will be entirely responding to questions from the viewers. No presentations, just questions from the viewers. If you can, please make a note of that time again, Wednesday at 3.30. So they'll be uh, returning to specifically deal with all the queries that they received a week ago and have no time to uh, unfortunately respond. So on behalf of the Canadian Real Estate Forums team, remain healthy and safe. Thank you again for joining us today. Thank you, George.
0: Thank you for listening to the CRE Podcast.